Welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Riley Racine, and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. I'm joined by Dr. Brian Stansfield, who's a neonatologist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thanks, Riley. It's great to be here. Today, we'll be talking about neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Most clinicians may be more familiar with the earlier term of neonatal abstinence syndrome. Why is this important for pediatricians to know about? Well, the United States has experienced a significant increase in the use and misuse of opioids, and the problem continues to grow. That's right. Unfortunately, opioid misuse among pregnant women has also increased. As a consequence, this has led to a rise in complications for the infant, including neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, which we now refer to as NALS. Riley, why don't you start us out with a clinical case to get our discussion going? Sure thing. We have a 19-year-old pregnant female who presents to the emergency room after her water broke. She's unsure how far along she is, and she has received sporadic prenatal care. She gives birth to a live male infant via spontaneous vaginal delivery with no complications. Birth weight is 2,200 grams with an estimated gestational age of 36 weeks based on physical exam. The infant is admitted to the well baby nursery. When mom attempts to breastfeed, he has difficulty latching, so is started on a term formula. Approximately 24 hours later, the nurse calls to inform you that the infant appears jittery and is breathing rapidly. A bedside Finnegan score of 6 is calculated. So this is a typical case of how neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome would present clinically. But let's first talk about what is neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Riley, what do you know about NALS? Neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome refers to the antenatal exposure of infants to opioids and the subsequent withdrawal they experience after delivery. NALS can also occur in infants whose mothers participate in an opioid treatment program or from illicit opioid use during pregnancy prior to birth. Unfortunately, any opioid use during pregnancy, whether it is prescribed or illicit, is associated with negative infant outcomes. Does it matter how long ago the mother used opioids? Yes, it does. Most infants who have NALS are born to mothers who have used or been exposed to opioids at least within one week of delivery. Riley, what are some risk factors for an infant with NALS that you identify in the clinical case you just presented? So for our clinical case, the mother had inconsistent prenatal care and is considered young in age. The infant is also estimated to be late preterm and also had a low birth weight. So considering the maternal history and his clinical symptoms, I suspect that this infant has had some type of in utero exposure to opioids or other drugs. Seems obvious that NALS is at the top of our differential. However, we don't want to make assumptions too quickly without ruling out other potential causes. And remember, sometimes more than one thing could be going on. So Riley, what is your differential diagnosis for a one-day-old preterm infant with low birth weight who presents with jitteriness and tachypnea? In addition to NALS, the differential diagnosis depends on other symptoms that may be present. For instance, if a neonate has any type of seizure activity or jitteriness, the differential would include metabolic abnormalities such as hypoglycemia or hypocalcemia. If the delivery was difficult, we should think about neonatal encephalopathy due to brain injury caused by oxygen deprivation. Infants who present with respiratory distress may have transient tachypnea of the newborn, respiratory distress syndrome, pulmonary hypertension, congenital heart disease, pneumonia, or other respiratory diseases. This is especially concerning when infants are born before term. 
Good job. And a lot of these can be ruled out quickly by a thorough physical exam and potentially labs and imaging. So what about infectious causes? Well, infection should always be part of the differential for any infant that isn't following a normal newborn course. Any infant presenting with excessive crying, irritability, tachycardia, or fever should have infection quickly ruled out. Infants exposed to illicit substances are also at an increased risk for developing neonatal infections, so it's possible to have an infectious process in addition to NAUS. A mother with poor prenatal care is also at risk of having infections that she can pass to her infant through the birth canal. This includes infections such as syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, hepatitis C, or HIV. Good job, Riley. You highlighted many of the things we should consider when evaluating infants with these signs and symptoms. So Dr. Stansfield, so what if I'm waiting for all the labs and imaging results to come back, but I still suspect NALS? What are the major clinical signs and symptoms that I would expect? NALS is a result of dysregulation of one or more of four domains. I use the acronym SOMA to help me remember these domains. S is for sleep, O is for overstimulation, M is for movement, and A is for autonomic dysfunction. The first domain, S for sleep, refers to how the infant's sleep cycle is affected. Infants with NALS have fragmented sleep or shorter sleep cycles. This means that they may have difficulty maintaining an alert state between sleep cycles. The second domain, O for overstimulation, describes infants with irritability and excessive crying in the presence of low or even absent stimuli. This may result in difficulty feeding or weight gain, tachypnea, or adverse GI issues such as vomiting, diarrhea, and excessive gassiness. Third domain, M for movement, refers to any abnormal movement or tone. This includes jitters, tremors, or hypertonicity. And finally, we may see evidence of autonomic dysfunction. This includes symptoms such as excessive yawning, sweating, fever, sneezing, modeling, and even nasal congestion. Wow, it sounds like this syndrome affects a lot of organ systems. Do most infants with NALS experience all of these signs and symptoms? The clinical presentation of NALS is variable. Additional factors such as gestational age, gender, genetics, and maternal polysubstance use also affects the presentation and severity of disease. So it sounds like infants can be affected by symptoms in any of the four domains you described, but they do not always have to exhibit all of the features. And there are many factors that determine which symptoms they experience. Exactly. What about the type of opioid used during pregnancy, or the amount and frequency used? Do these make a difference? Good question. The timing of symptom onset does depend on the type of opioid and the dose of the opioid exposure. Remember, there are immediate release, sustained release, and maintenance formulations of opioids. Right. For instance, heroin has a short half-life and is only detectable in urine for about eight hours. As a result, infants exposed to heroin typically present within the first 24 hours after birth. And I know that long-acting opioids like buprenorphine, which is used to treat maternal opioid use disorder, has a half-life between 24 and 48 hours. So infants with exposure to this substance may present much later. Exactly. The overall onset of symptoms can vary between the first 24 hours of life and all the way to the 5th to 7th day of life. And as we know, this is often past the typical hospital discharge day for term infants. Wow, that must make it important to complete a thorough evaluation of an infant's postnatal course to avoid missing NALS prior to discharge. Definitely. Missing the diagnosis increases hospital readmission rates and risk for poor outcomes if recognition and treatment are delayed. So what criteria does an infant have to meet to be diagnosed with NALS? NALS is primarily a clinical diagnosis combined with history of or suspected abuse. 
Ideally, moms are evaluated by OBGYNs in the first trimester for substance use via validated screening tools recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. What risk factors should I consider for the mom? Risk factors for mothers of infants with NALS include younger age, being multiparous, pre-pregnancy comorbidities such as diabetes or anemia. Also, residing in economically depressed areas increases the risk. Right. So ideally, we will know before they deliver that a mom has used opioids during pregnancy and anticipate the signs and symptoms of NALS in these infants. True, but many women who use opioids during pregnancy might not present for routine prenatal care. So as a clinician, we have to have a high index of suspicion when signs of NALS is present and use our screening tools to provide objective evidence of NALS. Got it. So back to our clinical case, our infant was evaluating using a NALS scoring system, the Finnegan score, and received a score of 6. How do I interpret this score? Finnegan scoring system is a screening tool that dates back to the 1970s. There are actually several newer versions or adaptations of the Finnegan scoring system. All of these scoring systems categorize patients with signs of NALS. The categories range from mild to severe. So this scoring system can help aid choice of clinical management? Precisely. The Finnegan scoring system was created to stratify infants with NALS based on the severity of their course. This standardization aims to guide treatment plans so they can be tailored to the needs of each infant. In addition, we can easily evaluate if an infant is progressing or regressing by tracking their scores over time. The NALS scoring sheet lists 21 symptoms that are frequently observed in opioid-exposed infants. Each symptom and its associated degree of severity are assigned a score, and the scores are totaled as the final Finnegan score. And so how exactly does the score help guide clinical management? It gives a framework for when pharmacologic intervention may be necessary. While variation in approach exists, generally a score of eight or more suggests a need for pharmacologic intervention. Some centers will wait until infants have reached a summative score of 16 or 24 based on Finnegan's scores spread out over several hours to ensure that infants who receive pharmacologic interventions are clearly experiencing NALS. Of course, a single high score may warrant treatment without additional scoring. Centers often design their own intervention thresholds. Okay, so we talked about how there are various modifications of the Finnegan scoring system. Is one screening tool better than another? The American Academy of Pediatrics does not endorse one screening tool over another. Data does show, in general, utilization of a screening tool within an institution improves clinical outcomes and reduces length of hospital stay. The important point is to have a standard approach to screening and tracking symptom evolution. I see. So then, consistent use of a scoring system is more important than the specific scoring system used, correct? Exactly. Okay, so we have talked about scoring infants whose mothers have a history of opioid abuse. What can we do as clinicians in a situation where a mother denies opioid use, but there are still clinical signs and symptoms? Is there another way to confirm our suspicions? There are a few things that the clinician can do. Of course, rule out other causes that we talked about earlier. Often, illicit drug use is not included in the medical record. However, physicians may use their state's prescription drug monitoring program to see history of filled prescriptions to identify high-risk behavior prior to delivery. After delivery, what else can we do to confirm the presence of an infant opioid withdrawal? You can perform a toxicology screen to measure opioids and other substances in the infant's urine, hair, meconium, or umbilical cord specimens. Could you discuss more in detail about these tests? Sure. A urine sample is an easy and quick test, but remember, this needs to be done as soon as possible after delivery. Many substances might be cleared from the infant system if you wait until after the infant is voided. Historically, the gold standard for identifying toxins is a meconium sample. 
This method provides a longer window of exposure for identifying toxins. However, it is more involved and time intensive. The results usually take days to return. Another option is umbilical cord testing. This can be easily obtained at the time of delivery. However, recent studies vary on efficacy of umbilical cord tissue testing compared to the other options. Okay, now that we have an understanding of the etiology, clinical presentation, and identification of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, let's go back to our clinical case to see how our infant is doing. So for our infant, the urine toxicology screen returns positive for opioids. What are some of the things we should be aware of in caring for this infant? Infants with NALS primarily have issues with feeding, sleeping, and breathing. But since these infants are more likely to be born preterm and have low birth weight, they also are at risk for serious complications and have higher rates of death. One study suggested the rate of mortality, or severe morbidity, is nearly four times higher in infants with NALS than in infants without NALS. NALS is also associated with a six-fold risk of periventricular leukomalacia. This is an important predictor of poor neurologic outcome, including cerebral palsy. Seizure activity is an additional important complication of NALS as well. So an infant could develop pretty serious complications as a result of prenatal opioid exposure. What can we do to help these babies get through their withdrawal period? Non-pharmacologic approaches can be effective. However, if symptoms are severe, pharmacologic interventions should be initiated. Our infant initially scored at a 6, generally indicating that a trial of non-pharmacologic management would be appropriate. Yes, absolutely. Non-pharmacologic therapies are individualized to the infant's specific clinical signs and symptoms. Interventions are targeted at reducing stimuli that may aggravate the symptoms. For instance, dim lights, a quiet environment, and keeping the infant with the mother while in the hospital are effective. Skin-to-skin contact, swaddling, breastfeeding, and infant positioning are important and effective as well. Acupuncture is a less conventional non-pharmacologic option that causes release of endogenous opioids. This helps restore proper dopamine release, but is more invasive than other therapies and therefore less commonly used. Plus, there may not be a trained provider available for this type of intervention. Also, breastfeeding can help. Not only does it provide optimal nutrition and promotes maternal infant attachment, it can delay the onset and decrease the severity of withdrawal symptoms since opioids are expressed in human milk and may provide a natural weaning process for NALS. So it would be helpful to get a lactation consultation if the mother is having trouble with breastfeeding. Okay, so in summary, non-pharmacologic interventions involves focusing on minimizing stimuli to keep the infant calm while they get through the withdrawal phase. That's right. All right, so back to our case. We initiate non-pharmacologic intervention, which includes a quiet room with dim lights. The infant is intermittently placed on mom's chest for skin-to-skin contact, but otherwise stays swaddled. We also encourage working on breastfeeding and have a lactation consultant visit with mom. Later in the day, the mother calls the nurse complaining that the infant won't stop crying. The infant is found to have a high-pitched cry and appears irritable despite attempts to soothe him. On exam, he has modeling across his chest, appears sweaty, and is jittery. His diaper is filled with watery stool. His Finnegan score is now a score of 13. So Dr. Stansfield, now what? At this point, his symptoms are worsening with onset of new symptoms including diarrhea. His cumulative score is also rising. I would move forward with pharmacologic interventions. But it's important to also bring up that the scoring system is only a guide, and the unique course of each infant should be considered as well. For instance, there are cases where an infant might score low, but their condition is rapidly worsening. For these cases, pharmacologic intervention should be considered compared to an infant whose symptoms develop slowly and remain relatively stable. What pharmacologic options are available for infants with NALS? 
Typically, methadone, buprenorphine, or morphine are used for patients who need pharmacologic interventions. How do you choose between these medications? The choice of agent is largely physician and institution dependent. The most widely used are morphine and methadone. Morphine is a short-acting opioid agonist, while methadone is a longer-acting agent. So a combination may even be beneficial for the patient in order to gain rapid control of symptoms while co-administering a maintenance formulation. As for buprenorphine, it is definitely used by some physicians. As a whole, though, current data is not sufficient for it to be considered first-line like methadone and morphine. Are there any other pharmacologic options if our infant continues to experience the same symptoms while receiving an opioid derivative, or even if his condition worsened, for instance, if he started seizing? There may be specific symptoms present where other medications need to be used simultaneously. Two commonly used medications are clonidine and phenobarbital. Clonidine decreases noradrenergic activity and lessens symptoms of withdrawal, such as tachycardia, fever, sweating, sneezing, and yawning. And phenobarbital is primarily used for its sedative and anticonvulsant properties. It is especially beneficial in infants who begin seizing or in infants with co-exposure to opioids and other substances such as barbiturates or benzodiazepines. I recently read about a multi-center study that compared infants treated with morphine and concurrent phenobarbital with infants treated with morphine and clonidine. The study reported that infants treated with the addition of phenobarbital had shorter length of hospital stay and less treatment days than infants who received clonidine. However, clonidine-treated infants were more likely to be weaned prior to discharge and required less duration of overall treatment, not just morphine. Yes, that is an interesting article. There is a lot of research in this area. Is there anything clinicians should avoid giving patients with NAUs? Good question. Naloxone is contraindicated in patients with NAUs as it may precipitate rapid withdrawal and seizures. Is this because of its antagonist activity at the opioid receptor? Exactly. Good to know. Back to our clinical case. Our infant is treated with methadone for his withdrawal symptoms. After 48 hours of methadone and close monitoring, the infant's symptoms appear to be improving. Fortunately, this is often how these patients respond. Infants are incredibly resilient. Absolutely. This is one of the aspects that initially drew me to the field of pediatrics. So Dr. Stansfield, can this infant be discharged on medication once he's stable and his symptoms are under control, or will he need to be weaned prior to discharge? Good question, Riley. Outpatient weaning actually has been studied in efforts to reduce infant-mother separation time, hospital length of stay, and cost. However, inpatient weaning remains the standard approach in most hospitals for a variety of reasons, including a high rate of hospital readmission. If child protective services need to be involved, this makes inpatient weaning more practical. Regardless, the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines state NALS patients should be monitored in the hospital for a minimum of 72 hours once a diagnosis is made. That makes sense. Is there a change in monitoring once infants are placed on medication? For the most part, no. Patients are scored every two to four hours depending on their previous scores. As the condition improves, the medication dose can be decreased. So in the case of our patient, he is weaned off methadone and discharged by day seven of life. Once discharged, what is the management for these infants during their first few weeks and months of life? Follow-up with a pediatrician or primary care provider should be arranged within 48 hours of hospital discharge. And looking forward, infants should be monitored closely for adequate weight gain and development. Unfortunately, these infants are at risk for cognitive and behavioral delays. Studies have shown a correlation between infants with a history of NALS and those repeating one or more grades or requiring special education services. So primary pediatricians should keep an extra close eye on the mental, physical, and behavioral development of these kids. Yes, absolutely. 
Will the infant need to follow up with any other specialists? You should consider a referral to a pediatric ophthalmologist since these infants are at increased risk of developing nystagmus, strabismus, or other refractive errors. The child should also be closely monitored for potential neurodevelopmental and behavioral problems. It sounds like care should be largely multidisciplinary then. Definitely. The patient's care is a team effort. And so what is the prognosis of these children? Will they experience other long-term effects? This is difficult to assess as an independent risk factor. You see, opioid use does not usually occur in isolation and is often associated with polysubstance use and other factors. Therefore, more data is required studying NALS as an independent risk factor for various prognostic entities. Overall, NALS infants are at increased risk for vision problems, motor problems, behavioral and cognitive issues, otitis media, child abuse and neglect, sudden infant death syndrome, and risk of future substance abuse. I see. There can be a number of long-term pathologies that arise from NALS then. Yes, absolutely. Wow, we've covered a lot today, but it's time to wrap up today's episode. Let's summarize what we've discussed. I think that would be great. Neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome is a condition affecting infants exposed to opioids in utero. Screening pregnant women for opioid use or misuse is crucial to identifying these babies. Symptoms of NALS include jitteriness, sweating, sleep cycle difficulty, respiratory distress, GI issues, or even seizures. Identifying these infants in a timely manner is extremely important. Remember, SOMA, sleep, overstimulation, movement, and autonomic dysfunction. Screening tools such as the Finnegan score are used to stratify the severity of clinical signs and symptoms of infants with NALS. Screening tools can help monitor an infant's course and guide treatment plans. Non-pharmacologic treatment options are frontline and include dim lights, a quiet room, skin-to-skin contact, breastfeeding, and swaddling. If a baby fails non-pharmacologic treatment, pharmacologic treatment is initiated. Methadone and morphine are first-line treatment options, although buprenorphine is also used at some centers. Adjuvant medications such as phenobarbital or clonidine may be indicated depending on symptoms. These infants must be closely monitored and scored as they're treated. Ideally, infants should remain hospitalized until they are weaned from opioids and then observed off medication before they can be discharged. It's important for primary care providers to be aware and coordinate care for infants with NALS as they are at an increased risk of having more medical, behavioral, and socioeconomic problems in the future. As pediatricians, we play an important role in treating NALS and supporting any long-term impact NALS may have on development. Thanks again, Dr. Stansfield, for joining in on the discussion. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Amy Thompson, who peer-reviewed our discussion today. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Follow the link in our show notes or webpage for free CME credit. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.